All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray, everybody, and uh, we're going to get started, okay? Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you on this Lord's Day. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, thank you for bringing us together as your people, and uh, thank you that you are uh, such a gracious God and a good God. And uh, Father, we're just so thankful for this beautiful day that you have made, and we're grateful, Lord, to have your word today, Lord, to instruct our mind and to to teach us, Lord, and to change our heart and transform us, Lord, from one degree of glory to the next. Uh, Father, help us, Lord, to look at the doctrine of your son, Jesus, and to get better acquainted with him and to know him and love him more. Father, we pray you guide our discussion and guide our, our teaching time here, Father, and bless our service today and all of the families that are, are coming and on their way. Lord, we pray you bless them, keep them safe, and get them here and bless them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, again, we are studying the doctrine of Christology, and we've been looking at um, been looking at a particular doctrine um, uh, dealing with Christ's humanity. Okay, so this is essentially part two of that um, Christ's humanity, and we looked at a few different things. Like, for example, we talked about Christ becoming a man. We talked about the virgin birth. Uh, we talked about uh, Christ being sinless and that he lived a perfect life, right, as part of his act of obedience to God. That means that Jesus lived a perfect life. That's what theologians are talking about when they speak of Jesus' active obedience. Active obedience versus his passive obedience, right? Passive obedience talks about what Christ did in his suffering, the things that happened to him, versus his active obedience referring to the way that he lived a perfect life unto God. And so we talked about that aspect of his nature that is sinless and uh, so important, right, to talk about the humanity of Christ. And um, I think sometimes we can fall on one side uh, of the fence dealing with the person of Christ. Uh, sometimes we can stress his deity to the exclusion of his humanity. Sometimes we can stress his deity so much that we can minimize his humanity. And then, of course, uh, sometimes uh, we can stress Jesus' humanity too much and undermine his deity. And so sometimes that can happen, let's say, for example, you know, in personal devotion or with mystical experience. Sometimes we can tend to think that Jesus is kind of like our personal Jesus. Jesus is our homie kind of theology. You know, Jesus is our best buddy, right? So, and, and, and in a sense, it's true. Jesus is the brother, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is, you know, very, uh, obviously, we're one with Christ. Our intimacy with Christ is undeniable. But if we tend to, if we tend to emphasize our personal uh, fellowship and friendship with him, Sometimes we lose the transcendence of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the, the lordship of Christ. And so these things have to be kept in proper tension, his humanity and his deity. And, um, and you know, early on in the, um, in the Christian church, I would say maybe the first five centuries of the church, Christology was the big, big doctrine. Um, so let me write that up there. Christology, the study of Christ, uh, going all the way up to, let's say, the 5th century, okay, A.D. Don't believe those books that you read that have C.E., which 
drives me crazy. <laughs> CE is in reference to the common era. It's what liberal theologians like to use instead of AD, which is uh, Anno Dominia after the year of our Lord. And they don't want to use that to offend liberals, and so they use CE. Anyway, it's a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. You find, go to my library, pick up the books, I got them all crossed out. <laughs> That's kind of important, too, because, I mean, Jesus is the defining moment in human history. He divides all of history based on his coming, right? That's um, what drives the liberals crazy. Yeah. yeah Muslim, Muslims have their own version of, of historic, uh, the, the, the historical dating of humanity <coughs> according to the Hijra. So they would say um, A-H and... Um, The Hijra, I know we're not talking about Islam right now, but this is important because it denies that Christ is the center point of history. The Hijra speaks of the Muslim flight, where Muslims from Medina and Muslims from Mecca met in the middle of the de- in the middle uh, in the desert and constituted the religion of Islam. So anyway, they time everything based on that event, before or after. So B H or A H. Anyway. Um, all of history is determined by the person of Christ. And when you get to the fifth, uh, up to about the fifth century, up to that point, most of the controversies in the early church had to do with the person of Christ, with Christ, Christology. Um, perhaps the earliest Christological heresy that arose in the early church were, were really two, okay? Um, Gnosticism is um, is one that we already mentioned, and also Docetism is another one. Now, Gnosticism is an important one because it is essentially the, the bedrock upon which Docetism was based. But Gnosticism was the idea that, um, that, that the material world versus the spiritual world could never coincide and never come into contact with one another. And so what Gnosticism ended up uh, believing was that the flesh was evil, that your physical body is part of the profanity of this world, the profane. Um, and so what docetism uh, later came up with um, is this idea that Jesus um, could not possibly have taken on real human flesh because they had been instructed by Gnosticism, which is really comes from the mind of a Greek philosopher by the name of Plato. Okay, is there a question or a comment? I'm sorry. Um, but uh, Gnosticism is a branch of Plato, Plat- or Platonic philosophy, Platonic thought, that the ultimate, to ascend to the ultimate realm of, of, of what it really means to exist is to end up in the realm of ideas above the realm of the physical universe. And so this is where Gnosticism got its ideals. Docetism, therefore, claimed that because it is impossible for Jesus to take on flesh, since flesh is evil, and the Son of God could never have taken on evil flesh, therefore, dokeo, which means to seem. To seem. So what they were saying was, it seemed as if Christ had flesh, but he did not. So Christ kind of came as a phantasm of sorts. 
It seemed like he had a physical body, but it wasn't really material, physical property. It was kind of like a ghostly phantasm figure. And uh, many people in the early, in the first century believed this. Um, turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Just one, probably the preeminent verse that comes to mind to all of this. If you read any critical commentary on the on the letters of John, 1 John, even in the Gospels of John, which were written probably later than any other books in the Bible, you're talking, you know, Gospel, uh, you know, all the way to Revelation. I mean, you're talking about after the 80s. Uh, the first John probably written in the 90s. Uh, at least that's what most conservative scholarship says. Um, some people that deny that really have an eschatological agenda, in my opinion, uh, especially like all mills and post mills. They want to deny the late dating of, of Revelation and first John because um, if the Antichrist is Caesar Nero, well, then he, you know, came much earlier than that, and so they want to try to put John's letters and Revelation prior to 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, because the destruction of the temple fulfills all of biblical prophecy pretty much, except for the second coming, and so you can't have John talking about the Antichrist in the 90s after the temple's been destroyed. So anyway, just a little side note there. Um, what, what were we doing? Oh, First John. So go to First John <laughs> chapter 1. Um, so that you can see an apostle combating this idea, combating this concept that it just seemed as if Christ came, right? First John says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen, heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, the Son. Um, and these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So that idea there in, in, in verse 1, we touched with our hands. What an interesting way of starting a letter. What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have touched. The Greek word implying we physically handled him. We, 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 in, in other words, we investigated his humanity. <laughs> we actually touched his body. Um, um, think, about the, think about Thomas, right? I will not believe unless I what? Put my hands into his side and see the holes in his hands, right? I will not believe. He wanted empirical proof of the physical resurrection of Jesus. And did Jesus give him the proof? Did he commend him for seeking the proof? What did he ask him or tell him? What, what, what else? I mean, based on his doubting, what did he tell him? Okay, here's the proof, but... Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, right? So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying there is a better worldview than empiricism. And it's Christian faith. <laughs> That's what's better than empiricism. Empiricism, Thomas, has its limits. Christianity does not. So, I always like to witness somebody, oh, I don't believe in anything unless I've seen it, unless I can taste it, unless I've touched it. Have you seen or touched or tasted your brain? <laughs> so then you must not have a brain, right? 
So empiricism has its limits, <laughs> okay? Um, okay, so I'm just trying to point out to you how pervasive it was in the early centuries of the Christian church. You have all this, these progressions of Christological heresies, of things that people believed about the person and work of Christ that were sub-biblical, sub-biblical. So some people, this was a denial of what? His humanity, right? It's a denial of his humanity. It's saying he is not human. Uh, there was another early century, very early on in, in the history of the Christian church. I think it was second century as well. Uh, and this, um, and this, uh, this heresy, um, actually still held by some people today, you got to be careful. My wife always tells me, write slower, it's okay. Um, <clears throat> Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is a heresy that, above everything else, above everything else, was a denial, once again, of the humanity of Christ. It was denying specifically that Christ, even though he, uh, he came and he came in the flesh, and he, had, um, he, def he definitely had a human body, what Apollinarianism ended up denying was that it did not, in fact, have that he did not, in fact, have a human soul, a human soul. And he did not have a human mind. He did not have a human mind. So this is where, this is where the, the Nicene statement, Council of Nicaea, right? Council of Nicaea, three, uh, that's not right, 325. I always regret doing that. I try to get lazy. I don't want to pick up the eraser, and I get it all over my hand instead. <laughs> it never works. It just makes a bigger mess anyway. But the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, okay, asserted that Jesus Christ is fully man, fully man. And so the question is, is does he have a human soul, and does he have a human mind? in addition to his divine mind, right? And I would say, yes, of course he does. Remember, he is fully human. He has every aspect of humanity that we have, except one thing, which is what? Sin, right? He is like us in every respect, except sin. I was thinking about this last night. I was thinking about, actually, sin... Sin is not actually what makes us human, right? And the proof of that is that when Adam was created and God said it is very good, his humanity was in full tact at that point. He did not need to sin to become fully human. <laughs> if anything, sin undermined his humanity, right? Made him less than what he should have been. So, sin does not make a person human. That's important. Any questions so far? You were saying that Gnosticism came before Gnosticism? Right. Okay, I was thought it was the other way around. Yeah. No, Gnosticism is birthed out of Platonism. Okay. Um, 
Would you say that sin is one of the things that distinguishes us from the other creation? The ability to sin, you know, animal or other things like that, yeah. you know, don't have any Animals are, moral culpability right. or anything like that. They're all moral creatures. They have no ability to sin or to do good or evil. Yeah, that's right. But they're affected by the fall nevertheless, right? So, so, so you can see, I mean, uh, I was reading a, um, a theology book. What was it about? The New Covenant or something, anyway. And a book began by saying, Christ is Christianity. And I know what he meant by that. I don't, you know, um, he's just saying, Christ is the very heart of the Christian faith, of course. So it doesn't surprise me that very early on you have people who are undermining the doctrine of Christ, right? Who are undermining the teaching of Christ because he is the very heart of it all. And so this was all a denial of his humanity. And um, next, Lord willing, next week we're going to begin to study his deity and uh, we'll see the type of the the type of um, Christological heresies that denied the de deity of Christ. We'll look at a few more. But uh, in terms of his humanity, let's, let's, uh, let's scratch all this for a second, okay? And I want to pick up on a subject that we already talked about, namely the sinlessness of Christ. Because theologians have, um, they have taught that, yes, Jesus, as part of his humanity, was sinless. But then the question uh, is brought up, could Jesus sin? So here we are talking about two theological questions. Uh, so we're talking about temptability versus peccability. Okay? So peccability, uh, to sin, comes from the Greek word, the Hebrew, the Latin word to sin. Peccar. Uh, that's uh, kind of like Spanish, right? Peca, pecastes, you sin. Okay, that's a very similar. But so we're talking about temptability versus peccability, and was Jesus fully tempted if he had no capacity to sin? Right. So there's two arguments here, right? There's one argument that says because Jesus resisted sin at all points. He was truly tempted in a way that maybe none of us has even been tempted, right? Because to, full, to feel the full weight of temptation um, is to succeed in every time that you're tempted, right? Talk about resisting temptation, right? Um, versus the ability to sin. Uh, some say, no, he must have had the ability to sin for it to have been a real temptation. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I was going to say, um, would you say, or just correct me if I'm wrong, that he was tempted, but yet he didn't struggle with it? Like, he, like, even though he was tempted, he didn't struggle with, oh, should I, or should I not? You know, that mentality. I think he was tempted up to the degree, uh, all the way up to the degree before it becomes sin. It was an absolute full temptation. I mean, oh, definitely, definitely. It was a real epistemological struggle in his mind, right? But without sin. 
So I believe, yes, he was absolutely fully tempted. Now, what are the implications if that were not the case? What's that? Of him not being able to even be tempted. Or the, the struggle within of that temptation feeling. What are the implications of that? Right. Well, I mean, it obviously would mean that the temptation was not real, right? Um, and there's actually some maybe um, redemptive historical implications of this because the temptation of Christ has a purpose, right? It's not just he came into the world and was tempted because he was the son of God. He's tempted for a specific, I would say, theological reason. And what would that be? There's a couple of reasons. So that he could represent us, and where does that concept of representation come from? High so that he can become a sympathetic high priest. But where does the concept federal of headship. okay, and where does the concept of federalism come from? Adam. So the temptation of Christ has to do with the first Adam, right, and the second Adam, right, Adam. I won't let you guys see how I just misspelled that. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> so I just cover it up like I didn't do it, you know. Uh, so the first Adam and the second Adam, right, we know, we know that the first Adam was tempted and he failed. And as a result of federalism, which means that Adam was our legal representative of the human race. And when he fell, we fell with him, Okay. We fell with him. Absolute representation here. This is the way God's economy works. And so people would say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make, that's not fair and it doesn't make any sense. You know, well, find that not even helpful to think along those lines. It's just helpful to say, look, this is the way that it is. You know, God works, you know, if he represented us in a way that we deem unfair, then Christ saving us and representing us, that's unfair too. Right? Because it's not really according to what is fair, it's according to God working out all of his marvelous purposes in redemptive history. That is what it's all about. So Adam failed, he sinned, and, um, and Christ succeeded. So if had not Christ been really tempted like Adam was actually tempted, right, then it would have been a proxy second Adam. But he is not, he is a real second Adam. He really represented his people. He really underwent temptation. He really was victorious over temptation. Turn to Mark chapter 1. I just want to point out a very oftentimes um, overlooked detail. Chris, you had a question there, bud? I don't know if I should ask it before or after you. <laughs> before, because it probably doesn't have to do with. So in James says, God cannot be tempted by evil. So how do we reconcile that? You're right. Don't ask that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. Mark, I'll get to Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> See, Adam was tempted. He was tempted in a very Edenic condition. Right? He was tempted in Eden. W what is Eden? Paradise. Specifically, what does the Bible call it? The paradise of God. I like that. Eden is the paradise of God. It's not just, this is not any paradise. This is the paradise of God. That's the way that it's described in the Bible. <coughs> Christ, the second Adam, was not in an Edenic condition. <laughs> he was in a very hostile condition. 
His temptation, in other words, is also symbolic. And um, because it's superior, <laughs> right? Look, look, at, uh, look at verse 12 here. Mark chapter 1, as we get some good background music for this. <laughs> that is pretty, man, that's your ringer? You stand in line with that going off? You're a brave man. Um, let's see, verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So what do we learn already there? The contrast between his temptation versus Adam's temptation. What's the difference there already? 40 days. 40 days. He's in the wilderness, right? It's 40 days of temptation from Satan himself unmasked. This is not a serpent coming up to you and talking to you. This is the full-fledged satanic force coming against Christ in a very hostile environment for a very long length of time. And we know what he was doing during those 40 days. What was he doing? Fasting. So he's physically in a weakened state in a weakened condition and for that entire state of being you know i fasted for a few days and it was brutal <laughs> you know after like the fourth day it was like okay this is killing me you know what i mean 40 days i can't even believe it you know i can't believe the psychological physical condition that christ must have been in you know even medically they say after 40 days i mean you can incur detrimental physical effects on your body uh, after after the 40-day period. <clears throat> and, yeah, talk about going insane because you haven't eaten for 40 days and then having Satan himself afflicting you and tormenting you and assaulting you with all sorts of temptations. And then what did he tempt him with? An apple or a fruit? Excuse me, because that's not, that's postcard Christianity. There's no apple in the garden. It's a fruit. We don't know what it was. Let's be exegetically accurate here, okay? We don't know what it was, okay? It could have been a tomato. Well, it's not really pleasant for the... I don't know. <laughs> Some of you right now are like, what's wrong with tomatoes? Does a kiwi fruit tempt him with bread? He tempted him with bread. What else did he tempt him with? He tempted him with what he needed, right? He needed just a simple... I mean, just a substance that he just had to have, right? An essential, you know, sustenance, I mean... Instead of, relying for, with, instead of relying on God for his daily bread, right? Satan was trying to get him to look to him for his daily bread. Um, what else did he tempt him with? <laughs> That's right, Creflo Dollar. <laughs> Who's that at the Mark one? Uh, oh, boy. That's a good way to summarize it right there. Yeah, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the books for pride of life. I mean, the kingdoms of the world, the pomp of this world, the fame, the power, the influence. You know, you got people on MTV selling their souls every day for that. You know, and Jesus, or, uh, Jesus was tempted with the promise of all of that. And then look at this little detail here. This is, this is, this is, the, this is a clincher here. Verse 13. And he was in the wilderness for four days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. No other gospel records that. With the wild beasts. Where was Adam? He had lions eating out of his hand. 
Jesus was in the desert with wild beasts, cobras that could kill him, right? Snakes, poisonous insects. Pick your poison. Uh, smaller is not necessarily better, right? Right? Uh, yeah, think about that. So, And I think that that is there specifically as a redemptive historical development. It's theology. It's a way of binding the whole book of God together, taking us back to the garden to remind us Right of the beasts that Adam could subdue. And here, in Jesus' situation, they are hostile. They are hostile. And so, yeah, so this is part of, part of why he was uh, truly, truly tempted. Um, now let's get, to, um, let's get to Chris's question, because I know it's an important one. Um, John, or excuse me, turn to James chapter 1. Any questions about any of that so far? Yes, ma'am. So, Jesus was tempted from the time he walked the earth, but it wasn't just the 40 days. It was not the only time he was tempted. Just being a man. Sure. So, did he endure the same temptations, like, in a broad spectrum, like man does? I mean, I think like so. Everything? Everything. Sexually, physically, everything. Really? Yes. Oh, yeah, he was presented with that temptation, you know. Um, and like Chris pointed out, it says, um, let no one say that he is tempted. This is James 1.13. Let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot, tempt, cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's a very, very powerful verse there. And so what do we make of this? I mean, the Bible, you know, like Wayne Grudem points out, there are certain non-negotiables that Scripture teaches on this point. Christ did not sin, <laughs> right? Period. I mean, we looked at that last week. There's tons of Scripture. Christ could, did not sin. Absolutely no sin. Number two, Christ was actually tempted. I mean, that's what Luke 4 says. That's the word that's used in Hebrews chapter 4. I mean, the author of Hebrews is going to build his theology based on that, that he was tempted. Um, and number three, God cannot be tempted. And so how do we reconcile all of that? The best answer that I have for you is the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. The hypostatic union of Christ. Yeah, that's, that's probably a better answer there, Rob. Hypostatic union of Christ, right? Hypostasis is the Greek word that means two natures, right? So fully man, fully God, in union. And so that his deity somehow uh, assured and prevented his humanity from uh, giving in to sin. I think that's the best way of saying it. Maybe even more accurately than saying his deity prevented him from being able to sin. Let me give you an example about that. You know, Calvin says, he says, the prophecy that Jesus was to die on the cross and that none of his bones would be broken does not mean God gave him unbreakable bones. <laughs> right? His bones could be broken, technically. You take a sledgehammer to his legs... You could break his leg. So it's not, it's not so much that he doesn't have the physical 
capability of fulfilling sin, but that he was kept from fulfilling it. He was kept from giving in to temptation. It seems like there's a lot of implications if he wasn't actually able to, to sin, because it just doesn't seem like he would be a, a perfect representation right. of the human race, right. as well as we see the idea of, of God preventing men from sinning. Um, uh, we, we see that uh, in the book of Genesis, where uh, he, he told them that it was I who kept you from sinning. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. All right. Um, sorry, I'm forgetting a little philosophical here, but remember the open theism debate with James White and that guy, what's his name? Robert something. Recent one. And so uh, one of the main yeah, that's right. and points of cross-examination was, could Jesus have hated the Father and unraveled the whole trinity? And of course, the open theist says, well, yeah, yeah of course, you know, he could. And we would say, well, no, that's impossible. But at the same time, here we are getting into this, like, could Jesus have sinned? And we're saying, yes, he could have as a human. Uh, my, my answer was no. So, therefore... No, he could not actually sin. Well, he's... Yeah, but I mean, the way you're presenting it was like his body is capable of, sure, of it doing is. the sin. <laughs> There's the tension, you know what I mean? Yes, his body is able to fulfill that. So is his body able to hate the Father? No. The, the final question, the final answer is no, he would never be able to do it because his deity would prevent it. Yes. Be like hating yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so, yeah, you know, at some point it's like there's a tension there that yeah. you have to maintain. You know, it's kind of the same thing like with the Trinity. You know what I mean? You have to maintain a certain level of mystery within the Trinity. I mean, ontologically, there's only so far we can go in understanding the nature of the Trinity. And I would say the same thing applies here. And that's how theologians usually compare it to the Trinity because there is a level of mystery that where it's like these propositions we must hold to be true, right? Uh, yes, technically, the physical body of Jesus could have sinned. No, uh, Actually, he could never sin because of his deity. But that does not negate that it was a real temptation. <laughs> you know, so... How did that work out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, well, I have to have him explain it to us, right? Yeah, that's right. Grudem gives us a, an example here. Listen to this. He, this. This is like kind of an analogy or the way that he logically worked through it. He says, were the temptations of Christ real then? Many theologians have pointed out that only he who successfully resists a temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who <laughs> successfully lifts and holds over the head, overhead the heaviest weight in the contest feels the full force of it more fully than those who attempt to lift it and drop it. So also, so also any Christian who has successfully faced a temptation to the end knows that this is far more difficult than giving into it at once. So it was with Jesus. Every temptation he faced, he faced to the end and triumphed over it. The temptations were real, even though he did not give in to them. In fact, they were most real because he did not give in to them. That's like a whole different way of looking at it. You know what I mean? So um, we have a few minutes left. I know the temptation of Christ is a one of those... Um, it's one of those mind zingers that we want to we want to just continue to delve deeper and deeper into, and uh, 
I can only suggest that you pick up your systematic theologies and read some of the best minds on this issue because, you know, it is a worthy issue. I've just kind of accepted the idea that, no, ultimately, Jesus could not sin because he was not just a man. He was the God of man. He was fully God, and his deity prevented him from ever um, giving in to sin, even though his physical body had the capacity to do it. Uh, he would never have done it because of his deity, which does not negate that it was a real temptation since he resisted it firm until the end. Okay, you agree with that, John? Sir. Okay. <laughs> He's shaking his head yes, so. Okay, all right. Uh, we talk a little bit more about the, hum uh, um, about the necessity for the humanity. How important is it to believe that Jesus was man? How, imp how important is it? Could you be a Christian if you deny that Jesus is a man? First John says you can't. Yeah, let's turn there. First John chapter 4. Because remember, not surprising, you've got John dealing with, dealing with Gnosticism and Docetism and things like that. And therefore, it is not surprising to hear that the apostle, the beloved uh, John, is the one who addresses this head to head. So beginning in verse 2, uh, actually verse 4, verse, verse 1 for, for context. Okay, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, um, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. What does that mean? What do you think spirit means there? Just like teachings. I think I agree with you, Chris. Doctrine, teaching. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be like, maybe I feel like something inside of me is, is revealing something to me. Yeah. Like, like what the Mormons would say, you know, the burning in the bosom, you know, I know this is correct because I feel like it is. Yeah. It would probably apply to that. Right. Yeah, I think it is talking about, uh, if not directly false teachers, false teaching. Because, look at how he, his explanatory clause here, because many false prophets, <laughs> right? So don't believe every spirit because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit, every teaching, we could even say that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, um, he doesn't repeat the phrase, but that's what this is what the parallel is. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that is, that he has come in the flesh, is not of God, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Wow. He says, of which I tell you, or excuse me, of which you have heard that it is coming. Um, and now it is already in the world. I think it's a bad translation. It should be hutas. He is coming. So anyway. But, um, you know, think about that. Um, if you deny the humanity of Christ, because I mean, right now, I think, in, I think right now what we're thinking is, you know, mainly people deny his deity, right? We think of Jehovah Witnesses, we think of Muslims, you know, we think of people who deny that Jesus is God, right? But in this context, they deny that he is man. Um, I see that hand. I was thinking that um, <laughs> as far as his humanity, if he was just deity, he wouldn't have had to do all the things like go and, and, you know, he was up early meeting with the father and he saw his, 
you know, his role is to do the work of the Father, and he, he was moved by the Spirit. And if he was just deity, I mean, he wouldn't have had to go through the same pattern that we're supposed to go to. Like, he did the same thing. So, you know, me with the Father, we see ourselves as doing his work and, and being, you know, moved by the Spirit and such. So just that's right. That he had to follow him pattern. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so I think there are several reasons why Jesus had to come in the flesh. That's one of them is to be an example for us. Right? That's what Peter talks about. First Peter chapter two, you know, Peter talks about that, that he left us an example to follow. You know? Um, that's right. So several reasons for this, and I mean almost out of time here, but we've already pointed to the fact that he came to be our representative, to obey on our behalf, and there you have to go to Romans five. You have to go to 1 Corinthians 15 to see that there. And in Romans chapter 5, um, it is on the basis of his obedience that we are justified, that we are made righteous. Okay? So, you had a question, Chris, I think? I was just saying, I think it's interesting that back in this day, people had a problem grasping the humanity of Christ, whereas today it seems to be the other way. Almost everybody accepts that Jesus was a human, a flesh and flesh and blood human being, but they have a problem with his divinity. Yeah, that's now. that's that's definitely the majority of, of where people land right now. Definitely. Um, so in Romans five eighteen to nineteen, one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture, dealing with the subject of federalism and him being our second Adam, you know, speaks very plainly to the fact that it was through one man that. His, through his disobedience that resulted in condemnation to everyone. And in the same way, through the, uh, through the o- obedience or through the righteousness of one man resulted justification of life to all men. And, um, and uh, there we have to be careful. I'm actually pre- I'm just amazed how God orchestrates um, things, you know. I'm preaching on this very subject just in a moment here. And um, I'm teaching it here, and that's not... I didn't design that. He did, you know. But uh, just the the whole idea there of all men, being very careful there because we don't want to interpret that with a strict universalism, okay? Uh, because if you're not careful, you may be tempted to think, oh, the act of righteousness that Jesus did resulted in the justification in the being declared righteous before God for all men. And so universalists have taken a verse like this and said, well, see, everyone will be saved in the end. Right? Rob Bell and people like that, they've argued that, that kind of thing. Right? See? So, so what is going on here, um, I think, is that what you're seeing is that just as Adam represented his humanity, which happened to be the whole human race, so too Jesus represents his humanity, which is his race, his people, his nation. His humanity mentioned all throughout Scripture. His church, his elect, his congregation. I mean, it's interesting, but that we're going to look at this. Uh, it's in the text today, this question. So any questions on that? Because I know that's a, that's a big one, you know. But, but, you know, it's like being careful that we don't say everyone was justified because of what Christ did, right? Uh, that would empty hell out, <laughs> right? Judas, therefore, is justified. I mean, so we have to be careful Right to interpret these things correctly. So there are so many other things that are so important in the humanity of Christ. I mean, the sympathetic high priest that somebody mentioned. I mean, he can sympathize with us because he's been where we've been. He's 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 
been everywhere we've been, yet without sin. Um, that's right. Any other questions, comments, anything? I've got about ten more points that I won't get to. Just can't. We're out of time. But um, you see now why it's so important, though, to see Christ as fully human, the humanity of Christ, and to keep this tension of the hypostatic union intact to embrace this. This is what the church has confessed for thousands of years. We have to confess this. You know what I mean? We have to embrace the doctrine. We have to. We can't. We can't allow not even the smart, the smallest smidget of of, of wiggle room there. You know, he is fully God, fully man. That's our conviction. That's our confession, and that settles. That's it. You know, there's nowhere else to go from there. And um, yeah. So, any other questions? You sure? I see a lot of like. People rolling their eyes, head shaking, you know, but no one's saying anything. So well, most important thing there is people that have taken a verse and built their, their their beliefs out of a verse and not the whole Bible. That's where it always starts. You got to let Scripture interpret Scripture just what the whole Bible says, not just what one verse says. Right? I mean, from what you're saying, that's good. People with these false doctrines, they're taking their little piece and saying this is what we believe, but that doesn't add up with these other pieces. That's right. But, yeah, I think that's good, man. That's 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 good. Um, just taking one verse out of context right. is disastrous, you know, and you can, you can do all kinds of damage to yourself by doing that. So you definitely have to interpret everything in light of Scripture. Scripture interprets script, Scripture. Not yourself to others. Like you said, these false doctrines that people are teaching and other people are buying into it based off of an incomplete analogy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Amen. All the more reason why we have to be good Bereans. Well, we have to study. That's right. <laughs> Amen. But you do all the work and then give it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Amen. Well, let's pray, huh, guys, and we'll go, we'll go to worship here. Father, uh, Lord, there's so much more that could be said and that has been said um, about the person and the work of your son, Jesus. And uh, Father, help us to rightly see him for who he was, for who he is, that he will remain a man forever because of the, the astounding grace that he would take upon human flesh and that he would dwell with us, that we would be able to behold his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would um, give us a greater passion for the supremacy of your Son in all things. We thank you and bless you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.